This is Kamo Shanigans, episode 808, a conversation with Stefano Galliano. Welcome to the Commerce Against Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 808. It's our conversation with Stefano Gariano. And I apologize in advance, uh, or not even in advance, I apologize for the uh, pronunciation. Uh, it's funny, when I uh, interviewed Stefano, uh, we went over and over it, you know, because uh, I you know, obviously want to be respectful and get his name right. And I feel like the minute we started, I already had flubbed his name. So I apologized to Stefano very much. Um, I remember in my head being like, okay, it's Stefano, it's Stefano. And then also forgetting exactly the pronunciation he gave me for his last name. So I apologize to, to Stefano. He was such a great sport and a great interview. I had a great time chatting with him about uh, his uh, you know, his time in the industry. And I, I you know, honestly, I, I think it was, I found it very fascinating and just so interesting to hear his story because, um, you know, he was so forthright and, and very honest about his experiences in the industry in terms of being a penciler and how eventually the shift happened that uh, led him to become uh, not a penciler but an inker instead. And um, I, I just thought his his honesty was very refreshing and, uh, and his candor was, you know, just really incredible to hear someone be like, you know what, I screwed up. Well, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, spoil the interview, but, uh, you know, just being like, you know, being able to recognize things in oneself and how that led them to what ended up being maybe the best thing for them, uh, in terms of a career shift. Uh, so I had such a great time talking to Stefano and, uh, I hope that you really enjoy listening to this. Uh, it's funny. I think when we started, I, I did my, my usual preamble of saying, you know, it could go half an hour to an hour. And I think we went like an hour 45. Like it was, although I will say the first 10 minutes are more about me and less about Stefano. So I do apologize about that, but. Uh, yeah, it was just a great time uh, being able to uh, chat with him about uh, his work, um, the different projects he's done. And uh, yeah, I think you'll really dig this. This is a really fun interview to do. Um, and now uh, we just got to get Michael Lark on the show to, uh, to uh, you know, get his his side of the story in terms of some of the Gotham Central stuff. I mean, uh, Lark and... Um, and Gardiano have been such a great team working together that um, I, you know, it'd be great to talk to um, Michael just to get, you know, just obviously his own his own history in comics and the different projects he's worked on, and especially Gotham Central being one I hold on in extremely high regard. I mean, he's done a lot of great projects. Let's so not cut him short by any means. Um, but uh, you know, anyways, we talk about Michael as well in this in this episode. But uh, anyways, enough preamble. I apologize for wasting three minutes of your time, uh, dear listener. But uh, this was a, a really fun conversation. I hope that you get a lot out of it. And uh, Stefano, you know, we, you know, he was just such a, just a really refreshing guest because you know his candor really um, was incredible, and I really appreciated that honesty. It really came through, and uh, yeah, it was just a great conversation. I can't say that enough. Uh, if you want to email me, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail You can rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. In terms of upcoming episodes, we do have an upcoming episode with uh, Pat Olaf uh, talking about a new creator-run project he's working on. I think this is actually his first 
Creative Rome project uh, with Chuck Austin, who has not been seen in comics for quite some time. So I'm really excited to, to talk about the kind of the behind the scenes, how that came about. Um, we're also going to, I'm going to be sitting down with Chris Claremont soon. Uh, he was on the show back when, I think he was like the, the third interview guest I ever had on the show. Um, I actually have to go back and re-listen to it just to have a sense of what I talked about with him, which I would imagine would have been X-Men. Um, but what I really want to talk to him and do a little bit more of a deep dive is his Fantastic Four run as uh, he recently, uh, not he recently, but Marvel has been uh, publishing that run, his run of Fantastic Four and the part of the Heroes Return Complete Collection. So I'm really excited to talk about that. And we also are hopefully going to be talking with Michael Lark soon as well. Uh, a big thank you to Stefano actually on that one for helping to make that happen. Um, I really appreciate that because uh, I don't know if I would have been able to get in touch with uh, with him if it wasn't for uh, Stefano uh, kind of you know going above and beyond and saying, you know, let's, let's see if we can get you guys together because I think he wants to hear uh, Michael's stories too. Anyways, thanks for this preamble. Uh, let's jump right into a very enjoyable interview. It's, uh, as I said, about an hour and 45 or so uh, with Stefano Gariano. Enjoy. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Stefano, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, great to have you on the show. Um, I mean, I've been asking everyone, and obviously 2020 has been such a weird year for everyone. Um, how have you been making out so far? You know, it, we'll just stick with weird. It's, uh, it's fine. It's uh, definitely, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think, you know, just the weirdness on uh, every level, it seems like, you know, society, community, global, national, you know, family, it's uh, affecting me, I think, definitely, and it's affecting pretty much everyone I know, and I like kind of, you know, not glossing over that, because I think it's a particular moment, and uh, it's, it's, it's good to acknowledge, you know, uh, how things are feeling. In the specifics, I can say that everyone in my family is healthy, uh, including elderly parents and uh, you know people that live in Italy that were right in the hot zone when there was the first outbreak of uh, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm in Washington State, which was also one of the early spots. And uh, so it's, it's kind of nice that everyone is healthy. But I feel like I can't say, oh yeah, everything's fine because it's been weird. How about you? Um, I, I have to say, I've been very blessed. I mean, uh, up in Canada, our response was relatively quick about trying to kind of clamp things down. Um, my wife and I both worked with employers that were you know, uh, able to allow us to work from home fairly easily. And then in the middle of everything, uh, we actually uh, adopted a little girl at the, in June. So it's been weird, but like kind of on a good end. And it's weird to ask people, obviously, because you know there have been so many really bad stories. People have been so badly affected. So it's weird to have a year where I've actually had a really beautiful thing happened in my life because I've had my daughter enter oh, our lives uh, whereas so many people have had a rough spot although I, it's been interesting because yeah. you know when I tell people that it's because people almost want good news more than ever yeah. they're much more maybe excited than they would even normally be because they just oh, need something good to happen to somebody it, it put a smile on my face and you know it must be a strange thing to you know have it happen in June when already like things are happening but it sounds like Canada handled things well enough that there weren't too many problems. Obviously, this must have been something that we're planning for a long time, and I'm 
really glad that it went through. That's, that's very cheerful news. I appreciate you sharing that, and congratulations. Well, thank you. I will say, you know, when you go when you talk about a weird year, I mean, even the way we found out, like, you know, in February, March, they said that, you know, there, there's this little girl available. Um, you know, are you interested? And we were like, yes, because we were always told by our adoption agency in Toronto that, you know, the chances of getting a baby girl was slim to none, uh, that getting a younger child in general was already difficult, and then getting a girl was even harder. And so, you know, they asked us, and we kind of figured it wouldn't go through. Um, and then they called us and said, hey, you're in the top three in the running. And we're like, okay, we're getting close. But, you know, then you have this, you know, month where we're like wondering, are we going to have a kid or not? Like, it's this crazy yeah. feeling. My son was six and a half at the time, uh, biological son. So, like, he's excited because we always thought we were going to have a little boy because that's what we were kind of conditioned to believe we were going to get a three or four year old boy. And then on on April 6th, my uh, I was out. Uh, in my backyard with or my back lane with my son and uh, my wife comes out crying and I'm like oh my god we didn't get the, the baby and she's like no no we did um, and then we had to find out like when are we going to meet this child because you know the, everything was locked down this is in the middle of everyone's kind of locked down no one's allowed to go anywhere um, so I didn't mean to make, mean to make this podcast about me so oh, I do no, apologize it's, it's super interesting <laughs> So um, we um, we didn't know what to do, and so they told us, okay, we're going to have you start you know, doing FaceTimes with the foster mother and with your daughter. And we're like, okay. And if you've ever tried to you know, do a FaceTime with a one-year-old, it doesn't go very well because they don't know what's happening. So after a while, the foster mother, who's also fostering another child, she would actually kind of walk away and leave our daughter with like an iPad or something. And so inevitably, any child who sees the technology and sees, you know, faces on the screen will hit it, knock it over, and then we're just looking at a ceiling for like 10 minutes and we're like, where is she? Where is she? And then she'd like poke into the screen and be like, oh, there she is. And then she'd like laugh and mess around again. So it was very... The first month of our knowing her was that, and then we had a month where we would, you know, meet with the foster parent. We again had to stay respectful distance of, apart, and then we would so, just go on a walk with my daughter, and it was very I strange. Was traveling out of state or out of country, I mean, and uh, you were already talking the Toronto region. Yeah, so yeah, so she's it's so interesting. Uh, a question that I'm used to now, but I, I never would have thought of is that when I tell people I've adopted, they always ask from where, and I'm like. From Toronto, like you know, we, she was, sounds unusual from you know the experience of other people that I know that have adopted. That's, uh, but I hadn't heard of people adopting from their own community, basically. That's, yeah, it's, it's it, you know? yeah, and I've learned that that is not everyone's immediate response, right? Because everyone just kind of assumes like the, the two questions people ask are from where and how much did it cost. And right. when we went through the Children's Aid Society of Toronto, it was local. And there was actually no cost because it was all through a government organization. So it's very different experience than most people, I think, have in their minds because you hear about, you know, adoptions being done internationally and it being like a lot harder and you having to travel there and bring them home. And yeah, we were, again, very blessed. Um, anyways, I'll, I'll stop making it about me, but I'm very blessed to be able to welcome her to our home. I have to ask one thing. Um, how does your son feel having maybe expected a three-year-old brother with, uh, about having a one-year-old sister? How is, what's, what's that been like for him? That's a good question. Um, for the most part, it's been very good response. Um, I think... It's more just a kid response being that, like, sometimes she'll be playing in her room and she'll knock something over because, you know, she's one. And he'll be like, oh, she's not playing the way I want to. I'm like, yeah, because she's one. Um, so I think that's harder to kind of, 
you know, he yeah. was hoping he'd have some more of a playmate. We were so, to give you an idea of just how um, we had been drummed into us that we were getting a boy, in his room, we had a, a Super Mario theme, and so his his bed was red, and we had another bed in his room that was green for his brother. Um because we had been so it had been beaten into us that we were going to get a yeah. little boy. We just assumed it for the last three years of going through this adoption process that we always assumed we would get a boy. So the fact that we ended up with a girl was a surprise to everyone. Um, she has her own room now. He now has an extra bed in his room for you know people having sleepovers if we're ever allowed to have those again. Um, sometimes he asks me to sleep in his room with them, and now I have a bed set up already, so it's harder to say no. <laughs> so it's been something. So let's talk about you, though. This is really about you. Um, so I want to know, first of all, when did comics first become part of your sphere when you were younger, and, and what was that kind of origin story? It was uh, pretty much immediately because I'm the youngest of four brothers. I was born in Italy, uh, where I lived until I was 15 years old. I actually left to move to the United States on my birthday when I turned 15. Oh wow! And uh, with my family, uh, or most of them anyway, but. Um, uh, my older brothers, uh, like pretty much every Italian boy, had comic books around the house, or, or even girls, because actually the comic book industry in Italy, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but uh, in, uh, I don't know if it's more uh, like it is in Europe because of the Commonwealth connection, but compared to the United States, the variety and accessibility of comics in Italy was huge, because... Uh, uh, you had Mickey Mouse comic books, you had uh, locally produced adventure comic books from all kinds of different companies. Like I remember we had a weekly comic magazine that was actually distributed through the churches. My family, early on in my life, uh, you know, attended church regularly, and every week we would pick up this comic magazine in church that was actually really high quality. It had people like, I mean, people that even in America now are highly regarded, like Attilio Micheluzzi was in it, Sergio Toppi was in it. Uh, you had this amazing guy, Gianni De Luca, uh, who is not only in the United States, but did amazing, innovative work uh, in this Catholic, <laughs> you know, boys' <laughs> magazine, basically. Uh, girls, actually, you know, it had features for boys and girls. Um, and uh, and uh, I think that uh, I just absorbed comic books right from the get-go, but it really, the medium got its hooks in me when I bought my very first comic book that I bought with my own money, and that was uh, Spider-Man number 89, the Italian edition of that, uh, by uh, John Romita, Stan Lee. It was one towards the end of Stan Lee's run, in fact, towards the end of Romita's run, because Gil Kane ended up kind of, you know, going on and off, trading off with Romita over the next few years. Mm. And, uh, wow, you know, that, that was it for me. It just... Uh, absolutely loved Spider-Man. I had been exposed to Marvel comic books before. My um, older brothers collected the Fantastic Four. Um, so I was somewhat familiar with that, but Spider-Man really got to me. And uh, I was uh, six years old. And uh, then eventually I tracked down the Ditko stuff. And when I moved to the United States, um, I, it, I the stuff that I was reading uh, as a child was from the 1960s, essentially, because in Italy it was being reprinted about 10 years later. And uh, when I got to the States, it was the early 80s, and I went to comic book stores and basically filled the gaps in my collection. So I just kind of had a condensed, um, a, a, you know, just a availability of uh, pretty much the first 20 years of Marvel Comics over a period of about 10 years at that time in your life, you know, between the 
age of six and age of 16 wow. when you're susceptible to that stuff. So I not only had Ditko, Kirby, Romita, Jim Collin, John Buscema, Gil Kane, uh, Barry Smith, Jim Starlin, but then immediately, you know, I had access without having to wait as long as Americans did uh, <laughs> to uh, Frank Miller and John Byrne and Chris Claremont. You know, it just, it's, uh, so it, it, it was really amazing. I mean, it just, it, uh, I pretty quickly, uh, one of my older brothers was a amazing, I mean, really amazing cartoonist. And um, he started drawing very early on and I got it in my head that I too wanted to be a cartoonist. So, Certainly, you know, I mean, I, my first submission to Marvel Comics, I was probably 13 years old or something like that. You know, it was just something that was very much a part of my life uh, all along, really. Who is the, the more talented brother? Andrea. Uh, just absolutely. Uh, um, Andrea, unfortunately, passed away oh. um, recently. But uh, he, um, I will say this, uh, this might give you an idea of, uh, you know, of course I'm biased, but it might give you an idea of, uh, of his talent. When uh, we had just moved to the United States, and I was 15, he was 17 years old, we thought, well, you know, we're in the States now, so we're going to go down to New York City, and we're going to go to the Marvel offices, and we're going to ask to talk to Jim Shooter, and show him our work. Maybe we'll get a job out of it, right? And we did. Well, we didn't get the job. <laughs> we we, uh, we were living in Colorado at the time, and um, back then, I don't know if it's still done, but there was it was fairly easy on college campuses to find people that were maybe going home for the summer that needed like somebody to share the ride with or whatever. So we found a kid that was going back to the East Coast, and we uh, you know drove over with him, had a couple of adventures on the way, got to New York without an appointment, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Because it was just that threshold. I mean, literally five years ago, five years earlier, this was 1982. In in, in the late 1970s, probably people could have gotten away. You know, you hear about people just palling around with Jack Kirby. I mean, that's how I mean, Mark Wolfman, you know, like mm-hmm. knew Jack Kirby personally before they started working in the business. And, uh, you know, we were buying the hype of the Stanley soapbox, you know, and like, you know, the bullpen and all that stuff and uh, didn't realize that things had changed just enough. I mean, nowadays you couldn't even get into the building, right? Yeah. But even back then, it had gotten to a point where they had, you know, somebody at the front office that kept kids from just wandering in. <laughs> and so they stopped us and they said, you can't go in with your portfolios, you know, and uh, no, Mr. Shooter is not going to see you today. And we're like, well, but we came all the way from Colorado. He has to see us. Eventually, um, we got to talk, I mean, literally by stubbornness, by just refusing to leave, we got to talk to Larry Hama. Now, are you familiar with Larry Hama? Yeah. Okay, so there, there was this great interview that I heard on uh, Fat Man on Batman with uh, Greg Capullo, where Greg Capullo describes his relationship with Larry Hama, and we didn't have a relationship with Larry Hama because we didn't leave in, live in the area, so we only saw him at one time, but it was very familiar when Capullo described uh, Mr. Hama's, you know, just attitude, very no-nonsense, a bit gruff, you know, and uh, Larry Hama definitely put us in our place, definitely said, kids, you know, you may think you're a big deal wherever you're from, but this is the big leagues, and, you know, just because you're the best artist in your art class in high school, you know, that's not the standard here, right? Mm -hmm. But when he saw my brother's work, this is what he said, come back in six months, keep practicing, work a little bit on this, come back in six months, and we may have work for you. 
Wow. And there I was 17 years old. And I just ran into some of his old work. I found an old box recently, and I was looking at it. It's like, oh, wow, yes, yes, he really, he had it. He just had it. And uh, what Andrea ended up doing is when he went back to Colorado, in that kind of way that teenagers will, like, you know, instead of looking at the bright side, which is like, wow, we got a really positive feedback, he was like, oh, they didn't hire me. So he just went in a different direction, and what he did is he went to a, a local newspaper, it was a college newspaper, we were right by the University of Colorado in Boulder, which had a paper that came out five times a week, it was a, a daily paper except for weekends, and Andrea went to the offices and pitched and uh, sold a science fiction uh, adventure serial, and while he was going to high school for the next two years, he wrote and drew and lettered a strip a day, five days a week, for two years. Oh, wow. Delivered him on time, and, uh, you know, it was a really good, solid piece. It just, you know, he was, he was really amazing. And uh, eventually, he just, you know, went off in a different direction and uh, didn't, you know, stay in the business. He came very close to getting the strip syndicated. Um, I forget if it was King Features or one of the big syndicates of newspapers in the United States. Actually, came out to Colorado to see him. But it was definitely the time when adventure strips were dying out, and uh, ultimately they passed on it because it was, you know, it had already turned into a gag a day kind of world for newspaper strips. But they looked at it, they, they came out and talked to him, and uh, when that didn't pan out, I think he was just sort of disheartened, also probably burnt out, also had other interests, and ended up drifting away from comic books as a profession, although he stayed involved academically, he organized a conference, invited Bert Holgers to Colorado, developed a good relationship with him, but that was Andrea, so he was really my inspiration, I mean, he's the person that uh, showed me what was possible, even for a kid, and just kept me going in that way, but uh, I don't know if you have siblings, but you know, as a younger brother, you're, you're always just kind of like, you know, you look up to your older brother, and you following the wake, if they play sports, maybe you'll play sports. Andrea was a great cartoonist, and uh, I was never, it's very interesting because uh, just talking more about, you know, sort of a craft, you obviously, you know, are, I'm sure you know a lot about comics, and um, there are some artists that are like Frank Miller uh, that really are just uh, all-around creative powerhouses mm -hmm. uh, who will write and draw, and part of what they do is they have a streamlined style, you know, like something more along the lines of Alex Stove. Matt Wagner did a great job with that, of course, Jack Kirby, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, my own style was always a little bit more illustrative. I also was never a writer, which my brother was. Um, and uh, But even in terms of artwork, uh, rather than, even if I loved American comic books, I think that I absorbed a little bit too much for my own sake of the Renaissance art, you know, but just like, you know, it's very, so I was like, I, you know, I just like, I, 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 I was trying and I, and I think, you know, that my, my instinct was always a little bit more painterly, a little bit more illustrative, and I'm still, um, I still don't know that I ever found a voice as a cartoonist per se, which is one of the reasons why ultimately I think it was a good thing for me to go into inking because uh, I, I can focus on just the finishing and I uh, don't have to do the hard work of creating a streamlined narrative where a lot can be conveyed uh, with you know just very few strokes basically. In the inking of course nowadays especially things have gotten uh, to a point where you can put quite a bit of detail but uh, uh, there's a lot less lifting that I have to do, and uh, yeah, it's it's it's, uh, 
I, I definitely felt more like an illustrator in retrospect than a cartoonist compared with my brother, but he kept me on track with comics. Hmm. Wow. That's uh, such an amazing story. Uh, and it's so interesting how, as you said, like, you know, he, he was more like in your eyes, you know, the more like, ta- talented artist, but you're the one who still yeah. ended up making kind of the, the making good in the comic book dream. How do you, how does the first kind of breaking in? I mean, obviously breaking in takes a long time and a lot of dedication, but you know, how, what was that period like in the nineties, you know, developing your own style and, oh, and getting more work? The 80s. I mean, it was, uh, 82, like before we'd even gone to New York, before we actually moved to the States, we had submitted, you know, I was 13 years old and I got my first rejection letter, polite rejection letter from Marvel. Hmm. Um, we tried again in 82. I tried to pitch a strip to the same newspaper that Andrea uh, was published in, uh, but was rejected. But fortunately, um, within a year or so, at a, my local comic book shop, uh, which was then a branch of Mile High Comics, but uh, now is uh, Time Warp Comics in Boulder, Colorado, uh, they um, had a number of uh, guests coming, some really great people come in. I remember Paul Smith, uh, mm-hmm. Chris Lerman showed up, Jack Kirby, for goodness sake. I, mean, wow. I got to shake Jack Kirby's hand at a comic book store. <laughs> you know, this is, <laughs> this is amazing when you look at Black Panther now, when you look at all this stuff, it's just, you know, the, the accessibility was incredible. And as one of these signings, I think it was a time that actually Jim Shooter <laughs> came to see, uh, the, came to visit the coin shop in Boulder, Colorado. I uh, met a local fan group, uh, Acme Comics, which was based in Denver, not too far from Boulder. I just got my driver's license, so I started working on this fanzine, basically, Acme Comics, that was being put out by a fan group in Colorado. And then from that, uh, myself and uh, a few friends branched off um, to try our luck at publishing nationwide uh, not as a fanzine, but as part of a black and white boom of the 1980s that the Teenage Mutant Turtles uh, came out of, of course. And, uh, uh, you know, the ground had been laid by uh, Cerebus, Elfquest, and American Splendor, basically. And then there was, you know, Jack Cat's First Kingdom. So we had an idea what self-publishing was like. And in 1983, uh, actually our first issue came out in 1984, but in 1983 we started working on this quarterly magazine. So I was already working, even if I wasn't making any money at all, mm-hmm. uh, when I was 16 years old, basically. And um, wow. on the strength of that, uh, I was offered uh, an assignment when I was 20 years old. I, I've been doing this magazine, Crimson Dreams, quarterly for about three years at this point. And uh, Steve Siegel um, needed uh, an artist for a series, his first published work. Steve Siegel now is uh, known for his work. Well, he's done a lot of work. He's worked on excellent. He's worked on a bunch of stuff over the years. But Mm -hmm. uh, mostly he's known for his work with Man of Action. He co-created The Hero 6. He, uh, you know, his group created Ben 10, which was a very successful, uh, of course, animated show. And uh, Steve's first uh, published project was a book called Kafka, which was actually reprinted by Image not too long ago. And um, he was looking for an artist because his original choice was honestly inexplicably rejected by the uh, publisher, Danny Lubert. And God bless Danny, she 
was looking for something different. The original artist, Norm Dwyer, was another one of the artists that I knew from the uh, you know local fandom, basically, and had already published a couple of things outside of the fanzine scene, and really great artist, and I saw his samples that are really good. I have no idea whatsoever <laughs> why Penny Cooper didn't go for him. But I guess she was looking for something different, and somehow I stumbled on a style that she liked. And it was really accidental because it was not even the way that I normally drew. It was a style that was influenced by, um, although God knows it was horrid, uh, you know, uh, by comparison, but it was influenced by Hugo Pratt, who himself, I, you're probably familiar with Hugo Pratt, but if you're not, it was kind of a Milton Caniff uh, mm. offshoot. So it was something a little bit speedier, a little bit rougher than what I was doing in Crimson Dreams. And um, it just clicked with uh, the story and uh, the publisher liked it. So I was hired to do Kafka. And that was my uh, first real professional non-self-published job that I got paid for, basically. And that was in 1987. And then from there, you know, it was a very slow road because I was kind of a, you know, I I did not have a, a very good focus on building my career and I was moving around about every six months to different places you know ended up in Seattle but over the years you know I got published by after Renegade Press uh, I did some work with Caliber Press I did some work with Dark Horse Comics Mm -hmm. and it was uh, in the mid 90s I did some work with um, Broadway Comics which was Jim Shooter's finally got to work for Jim Shooter (laughs) (laughs) it was Jim Shooter's uh, last uh, stab at uh, creating a publishing company and um, after that I got a little bit of work from DC I was also doing other stuff you know at a point at some point in my 20s I realized that I could make a living as an artist without necessarily making a living as a comic book artist so I did some work for um, uh, I worked for a couple of years on a video game called uh, King of Dragon Pass for a small company uh, here in Seattle and um, in the meantime did a couple of small jobs for DC and uh, eventually DC started giving me better assignments. Uh, so basically, it didn't take that long to break in, meaning I was only 20 years old and I got my first professional job. Mm-hmm. In fact, the book was nominated for an Eisner Award. So if I had been a little smarter, a little wiser, uh, a little more focused, I probably could have launched my career in the late 80s, early 90s. But it really took another 10 years before I was working uh, in the big leagues, so to speak, uh, getting work with DC. And at first, um, I did some work for the Batman group as a penciler. And I was penciling and inking my work and also working with uh, Rick Hoberg. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Rick Hoberg. Rick Hoberg is, 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 is an icon. He... Uh, he worked in comics uh, in the 1970s and 80s, uh, and even into the 90s, working, I think, for Malibu. Uh, but mostly, he made his mark in animation, working on the X-Men animated series and a lot of pretty important shows. Mm. I assisted him uh, on storyboards and uh, asked him to come in when I started getting more work offers from DC, because I'm kind of a slow penciler, so... He did a lot. Uh, we worked together on a Batman miniseries called Batman Family, uh, written by John Francis Moore. That was in the early 2000s. And then uh, when I was asked to just kind of like try, uh, you know, showing what I could do on my own as a penciler and anchor, just, you know, kind of bring it to the table. 
I basically failed to do it. And, you know, I have a lot of good excuses. Uh, I just had become a father recently, you know, what that's like, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, really was getting my sea legs and couldn't really find a groove as a penciler. Missed a deadline and delivered something that the editor wasn't happy with. And that was basically the end of my penciling career. So I readjusted and realized that I've always actually loved inking. Like when I was a kid, I, inking was my favorite pastime. I would like trace things. I would copy things. I, I liked taking other people's art and finishing it. That was always, even when I was working in fandom and in uh, you know self-publishing, that was always one of the most fun things for me to do. So I realized, hey, you know, maybe there's inking work for me because I know that you know, inking is, 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 is much, much more manageable than penciling. It's just I don't have to go deep into my soul to find the creative batteries, you know, and all that stuff. So uh, I realized that it could be a good viable career for me. And um, uh, my first uh, job as an inker, other than my collaborations with Hobart, which was more something that I asked for, um, was uh, Gotham Central, which mm-hmm. with uh, Michael Lark, of course, Edward Baker and Greg Rocca, and Wow, you know, I mean, I, I could not have asked for a better book than that to work on. And it was an incredible way to start my inking career. So, you know, that's when I stopped doing, you know, up to that point, I was still doing a fair amount of illustration work on the side and, you know, odd jobs. And uh, when my inking career took off was, you know, the moment when I started being a solid professional in the comics industry as opposed to just a freelance artist bouncing around from thing to thing mm-hmm. so i'm curious so a few things well first of all i want to go back to 995 for a second and you have your first collaboration with ed brubaker what was that what was that what were the early days like of you guys working together oh that was amazing i mean it was it was funny because uh, another artist friend uh, brian sandelbach uh, we all lived in seattle and i remember this, this you know friend of mine brian who was also working on stuff, you know, at the time, more alternative comic stuff and uh, newspaper things, but uh, we would we would just, like, look at each other and go, like, wow, these are basically the good old days, aren't they? Because they were, you could, you could tell. It's like, imagine this, you know, just, it's like we're all young people living in this incredible neighborhood, Capitol Hill in Seattle, very lively, you know, all this music stuff has been happening. And uh, it was just an incredible environment, and we're all living within walking distance of each other. So uh, I knew Ed, uh, you know, I knew uh, Tom Hart, uh, John Lewis, David Lasky, Megan Kelso. That was like they had a, uh, and James Stern, you know, it's um, they they had a particular group where we got together and worked on serious comics together. And uh, I was trying to work in the mainstream, you know, pitching my stuff to Vertigo and. Uh, uh, it, it was a great time, basically. I mean, it was an incredible place to be, an incredible time to be in that place, and things were going great in the industry at the time in the sense that there was money from, you know, just like the image boom. You know, I had friends uh, that, like Mike Christian, who was inking for Image or Malibu and making incredible amounts of money just on royalties. And uh, it, it was just, you know, like Stan Shaw was there, Justin Hampton. It was incredible. And uh, Ed and I knew each other just socially, and he was aware, I had done a book uh, with Steven Sutoras for Dark Horse a couple of years earlier, um, Harlequin. It was not a book, actually. It was going to be originally its own book, but then it became just a, um, a series of short stories in Dark Horse Presents. Mm-hmm. And um, so Ed knew that I could 
draw, and uh, Bob Freck also was aware of my work. Bob had actually been a big booster of Kafka when that came out. When uh, you know he was at Comico, he ended up working with uh, uh, Steve Siegel on different stuff, and he and I had talked about doing something at Comico. Bob Freck and I, and eventually, you know, uh, he wasn't. Yeah, actually, he was. He he wasn't the editor on Harlequin, but he was the editor on Ed's story. Hmm. And I think the two of them were both aware of me and thought that I would be a good fit. And uh, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because you know that's sort of like Ed's least known work, possibly. You know, <laughs> I was a fan of Ed's from um, uh, Low Life. I thought Low Life was amazing, and then uh, Accidental Death, of course, was was great, which I'm sure you're familiar with. If you know here and now, you know Accidental Death, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so I knew that Ed was interested in doing something other than just writing and drawing his own misadventures in low life and uh, it was uh, but it, it, that, that project got lost in the shuffle I mean uh, Accidental Death I think won some awards and was reprinted uh, here and now um, I don't think you know there was, it, it didn't quite click I'm actually pretty happy with my artwork on it I think it still stands as one of the best things that I've done as a penciler inker and in fact that's what got Jim Shooter's attention uh, when I worked on Broadway Comics. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, we knew each other. Um, Shrek was the editor and knew both of us. We, I got the assignment, and uh, I uh, would say the only problem with that job was that uh, I ended up kind of choking on the deadline on the last issue. That's a problem that I've had as a penciler recurrently, obviously. Uh, but I was really happy with the result, and I, uh, I used photo reference for some of the panels, uh, using Ed as a model, which I thought worked out really well for the story, and uh, it was just it was kind of a blast. Yeah, that was a, a really good project to work on. That's a, that's amazing. It's it's always interesting to me to find, you know, the 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 early stories where people's paths cross, where they either have future oh, yeah. collaborations, or you know, they end up being bigger names later. And you know, you know, just interesting to to see the the origins of these different you know creators. I'll, I'll give you a good one, and I, I realize I'm probably going to take you over our, our normal time limit, but this is pretty funny. Right around the time, just a few years later, now here we are in 1990s, and Ed is starting to. Uh, you know, try to branch out into mainstream comics, right? And uh, so it's, uh, I forget exactly the year, but it's the mid-90s, you know, we're done here and now. Um, and uh, Steve Siegel had already uh, gotten a fair amount of success working for both Marvel and DC. And uh, he had become good friends with uh, Shelley uh, Bond, who at the time was Shelley Roberg. And um, uh, they had worked together, made at Comico, and, uh, you know, they knew each other pretty well. And Shelley, I think, was at Vertigo at this point, and Steve was probably doing some work at Vertigo. So I kept, like, angling for a job with Steve at Vertigo. I'm like, hey, Steve and I did Kafka together, you know. It's just like I, I remember I'd done something in one of the Simon Mr. Theater annuals, but neither Shelley nor Karen Berger had really liked my contribution to that annual. But I kept hoping that I would get this big break at Vertigo, right? Mm -hmm. So one day, in the mid-90s, I get a call from Shelley Robert, and I'm like, this is amazing, this is great. And it's like Shelley, she was like, hey, Stefano, I just found out this is Shelley. And I'm like... This is it. They're offering me a job. And then she says, Hey, do you happen to have Ed Brubaker's phone number? <laughs> oh, oh, that hurt, you know. It's just like, you're not 
me, you're calling for Ed Brubaker. And sure enough, she got a hold of Ed Brubaker and they did uh, Dead Enders together, which then kind of led to, you know, Ed developing a relationship with DC. And uh, that worked out, of course, as it will, to my advantage, because my first, it wasn't my first job at DC, but uh, my first, um, you know, serious penciling assignment at DC that wasn't just a short story. I've done something with James uh, Robinson before, which was really cool on Starman, but was a Batman annual that Ed wrote, and uh, I finally got the call to work with Ed at DC Comics in like the year 2000, I think it was, you know, <laughs> so it all comes around, but uh, you know, that, that moment was a little bit of heartbreak. <laughs> For sure. Well, and so I want to ask about the, that Starman annual with James Robinson. So that's, I guess, your first uh, yes. your first credited DC work. So how does that come about? Obviously, you've been you know toiling away. You you know making your your name for yourself. You've been working with Fantagraphics and Dark Horse and Broadway. So oh my god! So who? Actually, yeah, but you, you've done your homework. Yes. So, right. so who calls you from DC to to offer you that story? That was, and I mean, this is it wasn't Archie Goodwin personally, but it was Archie Goodwin's assistant whose name, for whatever reason, went down. Chuck Kim? Yes, thank you, Chuck Kim, yes. Chuck called me, and, uh, you know, he he offered the gig. I think James was aware of my work. Uh, I loved working on that assignment. That was another one, uh, you know, certainly uh, different. I took a slightly different approach, but I felt as good about that one as I had about here and now. Um, Really a great piece to work on, and uh, I was hoping, like, I, I, one, there was another um, story with uh, John Savage, I think was the name of the main character, but uh, James had written uh, a couple of years later that uh, came up, but unfortunately, well, okay, I shouldn't say unfortunately, unfortunately for me, um, oh, wow, well, sorry, I'm just having a major, like, you know, like my brain is going blank. Uh, <laughs> was a great artist, essentially, who was available to do that, uh, which I know I know his name, and right now I'm just blanking out, an OVC artist. Um, it might have been Russ Heath um, ended up doing uh, what would have been sort of a follow-up to that uh, Starman Annual uh, piece that I did. And then Chuck Kim actually called me uh, to do another short story for a different, um, and it was still James Robinson, it was still Starman, but it was uh, different characters in a different time period. But unfortunately, I was tied up on this video game that I was working on, and it was impossible to take the time to do it. Um, But anyway, yeah, Chuck Kim was uh, the editor that contacted me for the Starman annual assignment. And uh, I didn't get to talk to Archie Goodwin directly, but Chuck, I hope he wasn't lying, told me that Archie was quite happy with my work, and I will wear that as a badge of honor for the rest of my life. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so like that starts, you know, obviously an ongoing relationship that you had with DC. And so, you know, it's interesting, obviously, you know, you're progressing as a penciler at the time. It's so interesting to hear you talk about your penciling career and when it ended and being very, you know, very forthcoming on the fact that, you know, it wasn't maybe the, what you were best at, but now, you know, you found your calling as an inker. When you do start inking and it does kind of take off and that solidifies your career like are you having more fun than you were when you were um when you were just pe- when you were doing the pencils 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, inking was always the most fun part of a job. Not coincidentally, it's also the easier part of a job. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's pencilers like Charlie Adler, um, John Byrne, uh, Kirby, who can pencil as fluidly as the average human being inks. They, it just flows out of them and they're able to produce great work on a regular basis and uh, really, you know, while still being geniuses, treat it as a job. I could not do that with penciling, but I am able to do that with inking. And uh, yeah, that made it a lot of fun. With penciling, it was always, with exceptions, okay, when I, when I worked on um, the short story for James um, in Starman, that was probably the most fun I had as a penciler because I had one month and ten pages. <laughs> and the moment I read the script, uh, images started coming to me, and uh, I took about you know two and a half weeks to pencil the story, about one and a half weeks to ink it. It just all fit, it all flowed. That was perfect. But that's ten pages. You know what I mean? Yeah. When I was working, even on the the Batman annual that I did with Ed, actually worked out pretty well. Um, but I had to call in Rick to get help on uh, the last section of the book. It was about a 35-page book, I think. Some penciling jobs were a lot of fun and easier than others, but anytime I found myself with, um, you know, more than just 10 pages, basically, I would uh, end up in these situations where in order to finish the job, I would either miss a deadline or I would have to cut corners that made it so that I was not happy with the product, or mm. both. And that's just miserable, you know? It's like I, I, when I took my last step at penciling, and again, you know, it just there were a lot of other circumstances. Basically, I, it could have been ideal. I had an eight-page story by John Lewis, who's a really good writer. I was ready to sink my teeth into it, but I made the mistake of... Uh, the, the editors had given me plenty of time. I had about uh, three weeks to do the whole thing. It was eight pages. But I ended up trying to cram it into a week uh, because I was doing a few other things at the time. Hmm. And it completely, I shot myself in the foot. Uh, I ended up missing the deadline and turning in work that I'm fairly happy with but did not make the editors happy, you know. So that's miserable, you know. And, and, and just for that, inking was a lot more fun. Of course, uh, you know, drawing is something else altogether. It's just, it's, uh, uh, I can't say... I, did, I never missed it. I'll say this, when I, when I inked, um, you know, when I, throughout my career as an inker, I didn't find myself wishing I were penciling. Hmm. But undoubtedly, those moments when I have had the experience of drawing something and feeling like I could bring it to fruition, to my own satisfaction without, you know, pissing anybody off, basically, with <laughs> deadlines, that is a more fulfilling and rewarding thing than inking, just by nature. I mean, and I'm talking about when I pencil and ink. One thing that I never liked is having other inkers finish my work. It can be fun as an exercise, but one of the reasons why I went into inking is inkers get the last word. Mm. And uh, I like having the last word on what a drawing look, looks like. Uh, but if I can have the first and the last word, that is a very satisfying feeling. It's just not worth the candle if you're doing anything like monthly comics. 
Uh, maybe I would have done better if I was born in France and I was drawing 64 pages a year, you know, mm. of something. That might have worked. But for American comics, you really need a different mindset than what is my natural mindset as an illustrator. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was definitely a lot more fun to ink. And, wow, getting to work with Michael Lark, getting to work with Lee Weeks, getting to work with Trevor Hersheim, getting to work with Charlie Adler, mm-hmm. you know, all the different artists that I, that I had the honor and the opportunity to work with. Uh, that is a level of excitement and fun, actually, that I couldn't have had if I just stayed with a penciling career, and I am really grateful for that. I, it, it's, I've said this before. It feels like when, as an inker, you know, my daughter is a bass player, and I feel like, yeah, it feels like being a bass player... <laughs> And you end up playing with some amazing bands. As far as I'm concerned, you know, when I'm like sitting there working with, you know, Michael, Matt Hollingsworth, Greg Rucka, and Andrew Baker, it's like, oh, I mean, Led Zeppelin, you know, this is amazing. It's just like, <laughs> it's, uh, so yeah, I, I, it, it, it's been a blast, absolutely, because for, yeah, from a creative perspective, it's less viscerally fulfilling than penciling, but then you have the bonus of this collaborative aspects, which is one of the joys of comic books for me. One of the joys of comic books, especially the American model of comic books, is that in this weird kind of factory-produced assembly line system, you end up developing relationships that are similar to the relationships that you get when musicians play together, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I couldn't carry the front stage, I couldn't be the lead singer, the guitarist, or whatever, but I love being on stage. <laughs> I love being in the recording studio. I love playing the music that everybody else is making, basically, and seeing what comes out uh, of an interplay. So yeah, it's a blast. It, it just you know, it's uh, yeah, absolutely. So, so I want to go back to 2002 for a second. So you you know you launched the Batman Family series. What was it like? You know, being you know getting a book that you were going to get to start and an end. Like that must have been quite a thrill. It was, and uh, the you know the it, it ended up it, it was a thrill. It was great. You know the the things that made it less than you know fantastic are that we were working in this uh, strange situation. We knew the project was coming for a long time, like months, you know, but it took a while to get it together. And then it was it happened to be a weekly series. And um, so we were just cranking pages out. And I think that Rick and I, I'm happy with how we acquitted ourselves. And we were working with a good story, but it just, you know, it was kind of a grueling experience. And then, um, you know, there was that problem where I couldn't carry my weight as a penciler. Originally, Rick and I were gonna trade off, you know, and do about half pencils each. But I just, you know, in the end, I happily, you know, could rely on Rick, and Rick ended up doing about 80% of the pencils on that series. And uh, so that was something that, you know, again, it's it worked out fine, but there was a personal disappointment of seeing myself stumble on the job, basically. Mm-hmm. And then rushing to finish and feeling like the work that I put into it, you know, this, it was a good way to segue into my inking career because the work that I put into it was not as strong as the work that I did with Rick was. Um, I could 
could see the difference, you know. I felt like, yeah, when I'm working with Rick, I can just put my best foot forward. Rick is putting his best foot forward. We're fine. When I'm working on my own, I feel like I'm just tripping up. Mm. You know, um, again, I was, uh, you know, recently had children and there was, you know, all of these excuses and distractions, but the upshot is that that my enjoyment of that job was, you know, limited by my sense of not quite hitting the mark. And um, the fact that we were also working with Batman, which was amazing, but they were working with a whole new set of characters, none of whom actually got traction uh, in the DC world later. As far as I know, I, I don't believe any of the characters that John Moore, John Francis Moore created for that series were ever really used. Uh, and so there was this just sense of being really in this marginal place. Um, it was interesting because later working as an anchor on Gotham Central, here you have a series that is supposed to be on the margins of Batman's world, but it really felt central to everything, you know? We felt, I felt like we were just like, we were, as a team, we were firing on all pistons, you know? Obviously, before I even came in, uh, you know, Michael working on his own had just like, the nail on the head and got the ball rolling uh, but I felt like I could pick it up I could run with it the guest artists were good you know it, it, it just it, it was a book that became uh, no pun intended central <laughs> to the Batman universe um, in a way that Batman family was not and uh, although it could have been and I feel like it should have been with a name like Batman family I was hoping that we could just like Hit that feeling of being at the heart of something, yeah. and it didn't feel like that. And I knew that partially it was my fault. You know, I'm not saying I did bad work, but it, it's just that difference between, you know, hitting hitting it out of the park and just, you know, not getting a base even. Uh, so yeah, that was that was a, in some ways a little bit of a disappointment. Uh, I was more excited about the Batman Annual. Just as a standalone story, uh, even if I did lean on uh, Rick Hobart for that, I felt like I was flowing more as an artist. And there were some things in there, but you know, I was looking back at the stuff, uh, just uh, putting together my website. And uh, uh, yeah, you know, I, I somehow that left me with a better feeling than Batman Family, which felt like a, a long marathon with, with little to show for it, you know, mm -hmm. in the end. But you know, it, it was a good project, it was exciting, and It does. So that does bring up the question then. So you, you transitioned to inking and I mean, you couldn't pick a better kind of coming out party, I guess, to, you know, kind oh, of yeah. put your, uh, your inking stamp on something than Gotham Central, which had already, you know, had a full year in the can at that point was already, I believe, pretty critically acclaimed when it was happening. And then you oh, yeah. 
when you come on, you come on for the soft target storyline. Um, so how did, how did you transition to actually coming over and, and inking Michael Lark? Cause obviously he had done a lot of that first year when the issues yeah. he did, well, he did it himself. So what was that process yeah. like to take over and how did you guys kind of collaborate or did you ever kind of discuss what you were going to look for considering he had had so much control over, over his own finished product in that first year? It's interesting. Just as a premise, it's like, you know, we can go through stories and everything feels like it's hanging on just like these little feathers. In the end, you know, the, there's an overarching structure of comic book conventions of, you know, you, if you're, I always say this to young artists, if you put yourself in the mix, if you put yourself out there, mm-hmm. pieces will fall into place. It might not be the exact piece that you expect, but it's going to fall into place. Gotham Central is the piece that fell into place for me and it was a great piece fall into place. I mean, it was perfect, again, to launch my inking career, basically. The way that it happened specifically is really random in the sense that, you know, the late, great Gary Reed, who was a publisher of Caliber Comics, had basically created this informal, you know, association of uh, remarkable talents in the 1980s that went on to do stuff in the 1990s. And Michael and I both were at Caliber, so we knew of each other, we were aware of each other's work because Gary Reed, the publisher, used to send um, comp copies to everybody, right? So I was aware of Michael. I had really liked, I, I came, I, I had actually lobbied to, you know, ink him on, um, well, not, not directly to him, but I was hoping to get the scene of a crime job when he did that with Brubaker. I was like, man, when I heard that, like, you know, he wasn't going to be able to finish inking that story by himself, I would have loved to have inked him then. Uh, but, you know, Sean Phillips obviously did that and did an amazing job on it. Uh, but he, as an artist, was very much on my radar. And, uh, but oddly, I... The way that I actually got that job was very, you know, kind of, you know, I had to go way outside the loop to come back into it because I grew up a huge fan of Paul Gulesi. And uh, at the time, in the early 2000s, Gulesi was uh, working on Catwoman. Hmm. And uh, I felt, with all the respect, that I could have done a better job than Palmiotti on him as an anchor. And uh, so I straight up, when I decided, when I kind of, you know, got all out of my pity party after crashing as a penciler and realized that I could make a go of it as an anchor, I made a call to Nachi Kasper, who was the assistant editor um, on that book, and I said, hey, Nachi, can I get a shot at inking Gulesi? You know, is it going to be stepping on Palmiotti's toes if I do some sample links on that? And uh, I think he might have actually sent me some, you know, pencil samples, samples to ink or something, but um, nothing came of that. But uh, it put the bug in my ear. You know, I would like to ink. It started with just my being a fan of Paul Gulesi's work, mm-hmm. but it just kind of, you know, that's... It, it really kind of, like, in my head, it started coming together at that point, and the internet had just kind of started as far as I was concerned anyway I had a computer with you know that was connected to the internet and I was uh, spending some time licking my wounds and, and reading various comic book websites and I can't remember which one it was but one had an interview with Michael Lark in which they specifically asked, asked him hey uh, you know you usually 
yourself, but you know, you did work with Sean Phillips, you know, and all that stuff. Do you ever consider getting someone to work with you as an anchor on Gotham Central or whatever? And Michael specifically said, uh, not verbatim, but basically said, well, I don't think so because anybody that I would want to ink him, you know, people like to ink my, my stuff, people like Sean Phillips, all of the people that I can think of are people that are, that are doing their own work and they would rather be doing their own work than inking me. So I don't know that I could, you know, find somebody that is willing to ink me that I would be happy to have as an inker. And this bulb went off in my head because between the lines, I could see that what he was saying is, yeah, I'm doing a monthly book at DC. It sure would be nice to have somebody that's got my back on inks, right? <laughs> so I just, uh, I had a business card of his that I probably picked up from him, you know, at the comic book convention, the Caliber Connection, whatever it was, at Brubaker. I had his business card and I just called him up and I said, hey, I think I could do a good job inking your work and I... I'm not interested in doing my work right now. I don't think I told him that I've gotten basically fired. <laughs> but I, was just, I, I would be happy to enter work. Can you give me a shot? And he was great. He was like, yeah, you know what? It could help. I'm having some struggles with deadline. It took me two months to do the last issue. Let me send you a sample page and let me send you what I've just done. And he had just inked Gotham Central number 12, which to me, I mean, actually the whole half a life series looked amazing but it's just like his inking really had reached a pinnacle at that point issue number 12 blew my mind and, you know I saw a few pages before it was published and it just looked amazing and uh, it inspired me to like it gave me a sense of what it was going for and I did my sample page and uh, sent it into Nachi uh, who was the editor also not just on the Catwoman that Kulesi was drawing but on Gotham Central and uh, Nachi said well Michael is okay with it, you know. <laughs> basically, I'll give you a shot at not screwing up, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that's that's how it came about. It was, you know, me wanting to Paul Glacier and then realizing that Michael Lark maybe could have used an anchor and realizing that it would have been a good fit. It was actually interesting to me because, you know, a couple of people later told me, like, huh, I was actually kind of surprised to see you and Michael, like, clicking so well. I never would have thought of it to have used a pairing. And to me, it was like, yeah, I totally see it, you know. It's just <laughs> the moment I heard that Michael was looking for an anchor, I went back to, like, you know, I really wanted to ink uh, uh, the Cinema Crime series. I'm like, I know exactly what to do with Michael Lark. And then he had gotten so good as an anchor that I was able to do even better than I could have done if I just got him blind. Just seeing what he was doing on Gotham Central number 12 just elevated my work dramatically and I learned so much as an artist things that I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to apply but from Michael because uh, I could see where he was putting his energy you know putting out I think he was doing you know since there were some fillings he was doing maybe 10 issues a year and he wasn't wasting time on illustrative flourishes he was using photo reference which he got himself mind you I mean he actually went out and took the photos using mostly himself as a model for different characters so having to make adjustments you know I've got a couple of files still where you can see like you know a crowd of reporters and it's all Michael Lark and it's like on that one I actually went in and just made up some faces you know but it's just like <laughs> go in and like pencil in Montoya pencil in Alan you know pencil in all the characters and um
Now, what was it like working on that book when when Michael leaves and now you're inking over Kano or Kano? Well, I don't know how to pronounce I, I, it. I kind of like there was a nightmare period there. It ended up great working with Kano, but um, uh, I Michael went to Marvel and uh, Ed had already left. Maybe uh, you know, it's like it's just, it was kind of like back to back. It disappeared, and I could see over the horizon because I could see this thing unfolding, you know. So I could see that there was going to be a gap because um, I was in contact with the editors, and uh, we're like, "Well, we know who we want. We got Kano uh, ready to uh, jump in, but he's tied up on something else right now. We want you to keep inking, and it came down to like, who's gonna, you know, fill the gap between." Michael leaving and kind of starting. And uh, I was in a situation where I could have used the extra money and I just thought, well, why don't I just pencil and ink uh, that four issue arc? Um, I forget the name of it now. It was one in... Uh, Keystone Cops. Uh, Keystone Cops, exactly. In Keystone City. And uh, that was as much of a painful experience as Batman Family and more because oh. I didn't have... Rick Hoburn backing me up. I uh, did fortunately get Kano to pick up the ball on inks. Kano was able to pitch in and ink a couple of issues. And then Gary Amaro, who you know I've become friends with and is a great artist, was able to help me on the last issue. But I had to do the lifting on the pencils. And again, I choked. I started off feeling like, okay, I'm onto something here, I've learned Michael Lark's lessons, I can do it, and then I just fumbled the ball, and it's still painful for me to look at that series, I have had some kind friends telling me it looks fine, and I'm like, yeah, no, you know, it just, there's moments, there's moments, but it just, it it was such a painful thing, and it was a classic job where uh, the editor was unhappy because I was late, and I was unhappy because the work was just not so yeah, that was very painful. The transition was painful. Once Kano started penciling, that was great. That was when it was like, ah, and the only uh, issue was I started off approaching Kano's work in a vein that was the vein in which I approached Michael Lark's work. And I sort of massaged the work and, you know, more or less consciously was making it fit a vibe that was a little closer to Mark, to Michael. And um, Michael and Kano are very different artists, you know. So fortunately, I happened to be in Europe at the time, and uh, I was invited to a convention in Spain. And on the way to this convention, I stopped in Barcelona and met Kano. And I got to, he, his English wasn't that great, and my Spanish is basically non-existent, but we just looked over some of his originals, things that he had inked himself. And it was kind of like when I looked at Michael's inks on Gotham Central number 12. Once I saw, and I had seen kind of inking his own work, but it was in print, it was with colors, and it was not lettering, you know, the work that he'd done on um, uh, that hero book uh, called Hero that my brain is not working today. Maybe you know which one I'm talking about. Will Feigren, he did a oh. uh, book about Dial H for Hero. That's what it was called. Yes. Um, so I was familiar with his work, Inking himself, but looking at the original, 
novels. Uh, I had already done the first story arc, Dead Robin, which was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed that. But then when I did the second story arc that kind of did Corrigan, uh, which, uh, Corrigan Part 2, that is, which was the final arc, as it turned out, of Gotham Central, I had had the opportunity to look at Kano's work and I had had the opportunity to kind of get more into the right frame of mind and I felt I was able to do a better job of honoring Kano's pencils and ended up doing a little bit better work on the second run. But both of the arcs that we did together with him as pencilers and me as anchor were a lot of fun and I, I, I think the world of him as an artist, I think it was a very tough spot to be in following in the wake of Michael who had established that world. And uh, honestly, you know, like if, if Greg has a chance, has a chance to, uh, you know, give a different uh, interpretation of events, uh, I would welcome that. But my recollection is that Greg himself didn't have anything against Kano or I, but felt that without Ed and Michael, uh, there wasn't much sense with going on with Gotham Central. And my understanding is that the book was cancelled because Greg decided it was time to throw in the towel rather than sales or anything like that. Uh, because it's true, Kano did an amazing job, but it didn't quite feel like the same book without Michael and also without Ed chiming in with his perspective on the characters, you know. Uh, it became something different, you know, and uh, I loved working on it, though. But just working with Kano was really great. It's really interesting to hear your perspective on that, because I mean, as a as a reader, I think your because you came in and kind of you know added your own inks over over Michael, you know, after the first year that you provided the consistency that made you know the last you know couple arcs still still feel the same in the same world and, and gave it that consistency and tone. Um, and I, I honestly think that, that that last arc is incredible and the emotion that you and Kano are able to kind of put on the page and what you put Renee through and you really the acting is so strong that um I would say respectively that's still an amazing read even oh, today like I, it's, I, it's I, I agree completely I think the series holds up on the whole and again, again I may be remembering this wrong but I could understand Greg feeling like okay it's a good time to walk out of kind of taken Montoya you mm. know Montoya is and this would have been a good moment for Ed to step in and say, okay, now I'm going to do a story uh, about, and again, my brain is not working, but uh, Ed had a main character. It was like the sort of the, the standard white guy that launched the series, basically. Uh, I, I feel terrible that I'm forgetting his name now, but, you know, there it is. Um, I think that after the Montoya arc, it would have made sense to have an Ed story. Like, I remember... Mm-hmm. Ed's last contribution was the Harvey Bullock uh, piece, basically. Uh, uh, it wasn't called Unforgiven, but uh, do you remember what I'm talking about? I do, uh, absolutely, yeah. I'm yeah, trying to like remember. And, and the Penguin, you know, and uh, they had a slightly different vibe, and it really was like working on a TV show. Um, mm-hmm. There were a couple of stories that they co-wrote, but... The way we were passing the ball back and forth, although I'm sure they consulted each other and all of that, at first I couldn't even tell who was writing what, because it, it, just like in a TV show, it flowed. It flowed really well, you, you know, but there were clearly some characters that I was focusing on, other characters that Greg was focusing on, and as writers, they have a different energy. Ed is, I mean, Mike, uh, Greg is way more 
into this kind of visceral emotional intensity like you saw in uh, Half Alive and in Corrigan 2 at the end with Montoya. And I don't know exactly how to describe it, I'm not a writer, but there's something that is a little, like just like slightly more, there's a little bit more of an ironic, ironic distancing in it, you know? Mm. Um, it's not aloofness because he obviously, I mean, you know, you look at criminal and it's incredibly visceral, you know, but it just, there's a, there's a different energy. And I thought that the interplay between the two of them actually, you know, I can see it's like, it was almost like a wheel, you know, after, um, Montoya's crash, basically, we would have needed to focus on something else. And I think that adds such would have been welcome. So I, I, I don't know exactly, you know, if, if I'm remembering right. Uh, or if I understood right what was going through Greg's head at the time, but there's something about ending the series at the point that makes sense to me, and I really appreciate you actually complimenting me, but also pointing out that it wasn't about Connell's art per se. Mm-hmm. I do think Michael is an absolutely integral part of the series, and frankly, as an artist, as a comic book artist, I get really aggravated when I see these big hardbound reprints of Gotham Central, and I get it. I get it. I get that Ed and Greg were always bigger names in the industry and that um, they are now working in Hollywood and all that stuff. But it just it bothers me when I see Gotham Central, Ed Brubaker, Greg Rucka, and then in small type, and Michael Lark. And I'm like, dudes, <laughs> Michael made, Michael put more hours into Gotham Central than either Greg or Ed. And, and you know, there's always this thing where it's just like, yeah, especially, you know, there was a time when artists were the bigger stars to a fault, you know, maybe given more credit than they deserved in comics, certainly during the, you know, early 90s image thing. And then, you know, even in the 70s when you're looking at uh, the Barry Smiths and things like that, really just like getting a lot of attention, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the rights and the studio guys, so on and so forth. Um, but now, with good reason, writers have become more the stars of a comic book medium. You have, of course, Alan Moore and Grant Morrison, uh, Pete Milligan, you have uh, Millar, you know, Bendis, of course, amazing, you know, Brubaker, Kirkman, you know, a lot of these people actually, people like Brubaker, Bendis, Moore, um, uh, Brubaker, uh, Millar, I don't, I don't know about actually, but it's just like a lot of these people were artists, uh, you know, they know how to draw and they know how to tell stories visually, they know how to write comics and all power to them, you know. Um, but somewhere in there, the idea that Michael Lark could even remotely get sidelined in the shuffle feels unfair to me. Mm-hmm. As much as I really love if, what what Kano and I did on those last works, I really appreciate what you said, and I actually agree. I think it was great. I think it fit Greg's story really well. Um, but I still feel like Michael almost deserves a little bit more credit than he's gotten for Gotham Central being what it is. He always approached it in the same spirit that the, the book required, which was as a television series. He staged it uh, as a television series. He literally thought about, I'm going to place the camera here, and then, you know, not, not in the way that we all do, like, but as artists, you know, I, I certainly grew up with how to draw comics the Marvel way, mm-hmm. and Michael didn't draw comics the Marvel way. <laughs> Michael drew comic books like The Wire, you know, he, he just took that television mode and brought it into comics 
not doing the kind of tracing of photos that makes comic books look cheesy. He's using photography that he himself is taking to create a serious atmosphere along the lines of what Alex Raymond was doing in Secret Agent X-9. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He he brought so much to that series, and I, I, you know, I don't hear that enough. As far as I'm concerned, he did something that actually elevated the medium a little notch in a subtle way because it's not flashy. It's not a lot of lines. It's not something that, like, you know, you get a lot of pinups out of. But in terms of the storytelling that he put to it, it was so effective without calling attention to itself, without relying on, like, super cool graphic design, you know, or a lot of lines. I mean, uh, Michael, to me, his name should be, if not first, at at least the same font size as Greg and Ed when it comes to to, uh, Gotham Central. So that's it. That's my spiel on Michael Lark. (laughs) No, I I absolutely agree, because it's hard to imagine the book without him, because he established the visual style that he used, and again, that had that idea of it being, you know, kind of a the law and order of the of the of the of Gotham, and in such a strong yeah. way. Yeah. Um, so I have a question. I mean, when when the book ends, so I mean, and it's maybe I'm reading too much kind of meta commentary in it, but you know, a big part of what you know a lot of people liked about the book was obviously the relationship between different cops, but especially uh, Crispus Allen and Renee Montoya, and they're yes. kind of I guess the the partnership that really is at the the heart of the book, even though there are yeah. other partnerships that we watch as well. Uh, and then when the book ends. You know, it started as this collaboration between two partners, Rucka and, and Ed. And then, you know, now only one of them is going to be continuing. So he decides to end the book. So what kind of meta commentary do you think there is on the fact that, you know, Al, Crispus Allen is then murdered at the end of the book? Spoilers for, you know, an older series now. Um, and what was it like to to be inking that this this character that was so much life of the book is then murdered in the in the pages of the book? What was it like to approach that? Okay, I, I love I love the question. I wish I'd thought of that analysis. Yes, you're right. There is a meta quality to it. That's amazing. And working on it was was chilling. I mean, I inking those pages, reading the script. The only other time that I remember feeling that emotionally raw as an inker is when, and we're jumping ahead, when Andrea. Uh, died in The Walking Dead Mm -hmm. and those were you know just two times that really stand out in my career as an anchor where I just felt something intense uh, in in a way that I think the audience you know also was experiencing and you know there's been other times but it's just like those two really stand out absolutely Alan's death and even um, not just Alan's death but Montoya's collapse down to that amazing final sequence that Kano drew. I remember when those pages came in, I was moved by the script, but when I saw that big splash page, you know, the splash panel, Montoya pointing the gun at Core again, and just her breakdown, it, it, it was amazing. It was just, yeah, that was a really, really powerful story, and I had not thought about the aspect, you know, the correlation of like what a partnership means and what it means when, you know, a partner is not there anymore. Yeah. Like even, even on that last page of the book, when Renee walks out of, um, 
uh, the I forget her name, but um, you know the the commission, not the yeah, commission. You know, uh, you know who I mean. I think it was, yeah, yeah. So he walk, she walks out of the office, and just even the last words, you know, I've got nothing left, I'm done. I mean, it's very easy to read into it. Maybe that's how Greg felt, too. Like, this was such a passion project for these two guys. Yes, One of yes, them is still yes. there, and he's done. I mean, I, I, get, I get the feeling that he was going there anyway with the character, but it might have been informed by his experience, um, you know, just as, as, uh, as a part of the team there. But, yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to go reread that now. And uh, at, at some point, I'll corner Greg at some point. So right after that that ends, you you uh, jump over to Marvel and you start working with Michael on Daredevil. Right. Now, what was yeah. that? What was that like to, to make the shift? Because I mean, you your most of your career now has been at DC. Like the you know the yeah. the more yeah. brand name stuff has been at DC. Now you're making the jump over to Marvel and you're following uh, to Michael and Ed. So what was it like to kind of go with them? Yeah, I mean, for me, it turns out that I'm kind of like you know a, a big dog or something. I'm like I'm just happy happy that somebody's paying attention to me and giving me dog treats or something. And I just like, I was so excited because I mean, remember, I grew up as a Marvel zombie. Basically, I, I you know my first love is, is Spider Man, and uh, I, I read only Marvel comics pretty much for most of my childhood. You know, almost to the exclusion of everything else, including stuff that I've been reading before. And uh, when I moved to DC, when I when, when I saw that my career was actually getting more traction at DC, and I never got any interest from Marvel, I remember. I went and talked to them a few more times over the years and it just never worked out, you know. Um, when I started working at DC, I, I got so excited about working at DC. I, I just, I was genuinely happy. Like, I remember when, uh, certainly drawing Batman, I found the joy in drawing superheroes that I almost thought I had lost because, bear in mind, by then I had done, like, detective comics. I mean, detective stories, not detective comics. I've done Here and Now with Ed Baker. I've done a war story, um for Dark Horse, I've done this whimsical stories, I've done everything but superheroes, and when I got to draw Batman, it was just a joy, basically, uh, also, even getting, like, comp copies about, you know, what John Lewis was doing on Robin, different things that I was seeing, my golden covers on Nightwing, I got really excited about DC Comics, and I was like, wow, this is great, I mean, and plus, I mean, I end up working on Gotham Central, are you kidding, this is just amazing, right? The moment that you know, things went down in Gotham Central, and I was—I didn't get an offer on uh, something was about to fall into place, but then didn't from the same editorial office at DC. And what ended up happening instead is I got first uh, issue of the Pulse, which was a short-lived series at Marvel, mm-hmm. drawn by Michael Lark, and I got to do finishes on that, maybe a couple of issues of that, and. Uh, and then I got called in to do Daredevil. But even on the pulse, the moment that I got to draw to ink, J. Jonah Jameson, all of a sudden my Marvel geek comes out. And like I'm just like that big happy dog. I'm like, oh, I'm so happy that I'm at Marvel now, you know? <laughs> and it, it feels like you're, you're, you're with your friends, you know, you're with Michael, you're with Ed, you're, you're with people that you're comfortable with, you get to meet new people, you know, new editors. And it just, it, it was really wonderful. It really was wonderful to be at Marvel, which takes nothing away from how wonderful it was to be at DC. I'm just generally happy to be, again, playing with other artists on these incredible stories, and I've been so lucky working with really good writers and really good artists, you know, throughout my career. So, yeah, I was I was happy as a clam, and I mean, getting to work on Daredevil definitely 
and even on the pulse, it brought back, I, I mean, I grew up loving Jane Collins' Daredevil, you know, and just like getting, I even got to work with Jane Collins a little bit on issue number 100, you know, it was just, wow, yeah, that was incredibly exciting, and I, I had a great editorial team, Warren Simons, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, oh my God, Alejandro, Alejandro, not Alex, Alejandro Arvona, you know, it's, uh, and, and the creative team, of course, you know, just like, you know, we're all on email threads, getting to work with Matt Hollingsworth, amazing, you know, uh, yeah, very, I was very happy to be at Marvel, you know, partially because I had a job, but also just because of the work uh, that we were doing, and, uh, you know, the, the, the being in that, in that house, being on that play, you know, mm-hmm. playground, you know, yeah. So while you're working on Daredevil, you get, um, I guess, a, a two-issue gig that I'm really curious about just because I'm such a huge fan of it, which was uh, the, uh, the story The Last Temptation of Eddie Brock, which was two issues of Sensational Spider-Man. Three weeks, yeah. So how did, how did that kind of come about? Because you already had the, kind of the monthly gig at Daredevil. So, I mean, I, and I guess Alejandro was the assistant editor at the time. Yeah. Um, so yeah. did they just kind of give you a call and say, hey, we need, you know, we need someone yeah, to do these know, inks? I, or? I was in a situation where I was supporting a family, and so I'm trying to get a little bit of extra work, sometimes getting myself in trouble, even as an inker, sometimes giving, you know, Warren Simons and Alejandro some gray hairs because it's the last possible moment. I have to say that my worst time was when I worked with Jane Collin on a very brief sequence in Daredevil number 100 because I got so choked up because it was Jane Collin that that created some problems. But normally as an inker, I was more dependable. I was dependable, and uh, with a few exceptions, when I burnt out, I was able to hit my deadlines. So they knew that they couldn't count on me to do two issues per month because I'm not that fast. I'm so envious of like Scott Hanna, who supposedly can do like four issues a month. Now I'm like I'm more like a thirty pages a month guy as an anchor. That's what Warren Simons and I figured out. I'm good for thirty pages. So. <laughs> I was offered the Winter Soldier, Winter Kills job, um, and that was partially because it was known that I could work from layouts instead of finished pencils, and Lee Weeks at the time was recovering from some health issues that made it difficult for him to do full pencils. So he had been hired, um, he was just coming back into the fold after taking some time off for health reasons. And he'd been hired to do this amazing Winter Soldier story, this special one issue by uh, Andrew Baker. And uh, they needed somebody to do finishes and figure that I would be a good fit. And that was so much fun. I loved working with Lee. Lee was happy with my contribution. It worked out great. So then Lee also did an issue of Daredevil that I think came before uh, the Eddie Brock story. And uh, that worked out well. It wasn't uh, quite as satisfying as a Winter Soldier. You know, I had a couple of pages I wish I could have re-inked. But, um, you know, he did a great job going back to Daredevil after his great run on it. And uh, I got to ink him on that. John Romita, senior cover. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. You know, that was amazing. And uh, and then uh, he was offered the Eddie Brock story. By this point, we'd already collaborated on two projects. So I was an actual fit. And it was just a question of making sure that I had time in my schedule, which I did. Uh, as it turned out, the last issue was a little bit of a stretch because Lee had to drop out for personal reasons. And uh, uh, I ended up bringing in Rick Hoberg to uh, finish the series. And uh, But I had to work 
what you saw a little bit in uh, the transitional point between Michael Lark and Kano, I had to work to smooth the transition between Lee's approach and uh, Rick's, uh, which is a little bit more in the animated uh, mold, you know, a little bit, a little bit more cartoony, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. So that took a little bit of time to attempt to bring it in line, which I think I succeeded. The editor, Warren, was happy with it, and it was a really, that was another very moving story. It was a very powerful piece, and um, I don't know for sure, but uh, I know that Lee was going through some, you know, personal, uh, he had, had a loss in his family at the time, and uh, I, you know, think that as an artist, I don't know what was going on, but certainly it would be difficult to work on a story that was that emotional, while going through uh, emotional things in your own life, you know. Uh, but yeah, that was that was a, a really cool project, and I think I can't remember where both that, that that series closed shortly after that, right? It, it did, yeah, pieces, yeah. And that was nice. It was also nice working with the writer, you know, and then seeing him be very successful um, in comics as well as in theater and in television later. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was great. That was just a question of me having already worked with Lee and having the time available to do it. Yeah. When when Daredevil ends, I mean, was that I mean hard to have that book end and have to move on to find another project? I mean, at that point, you know, you had Gotham Central, which was a regular kind of uh, ongoing gig. You had Daredevil, and then you move on from that. So, what was it like to kind of find where to go next after having two longer ongoing projects kind of back to back? It wasn't a big problem in terms of uh, the work. Uh, I was on contract, not on contract. I, I was on. A, I had an exclusive contract with Marvel, so I knew that they were going to keep giving me work. That wasn't a concern. The bigger problem is that around that time, my uh, editor on Daredevil, who also had been responsible essentially for every other project that I've worked on, including the Eddie Brock and Winter Soldier stories, with Alejandro Arbona. But uh, my editor quit Marvel at that time, and uh, I found myself working for a variety of different editors on a variety of different projects. And uh, I guess I have ADHD or something, but uh, it's a little bit more difficult for me to juggle multiple projects than it is to just kind of you know get on a train and stay on it. Michael mm -hmm. Walken, that was amazing for that because the six years, you know, essentially working with Charlie and, and, and Robert and Cliff Rathbone and Russ, um, that was, you know, fantastic. Uh, and Daredevil, you know, was a great run. Gotham Central was, what, two or three years. Uh, I jumped around from assignment to assignment and it took a toll on me where it definitely was more difficult to work. Uh, so, yeah, it was kind of a bummer, um, but it wasn't so much because I was worried about getting work, it was just that I had more of a difficult time juggling a variety of projects, and, you know, I think most artists will say that if, if you can work on the same characters for, with the same team for a long stretch of time, uh, there's a flow that develops that allows you to do better work overall, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm I'm curious in terms of uh, you know kind of a, a different type of project you were working on. What was it like uh, doing inks um, on Winter Soldier um, as an ongoing book? I mean, you're doing inks. I mean, that's that a pretty exciting book. It was great. It was nice to work with that again, and uh, that and Captain America, which kind of came back to back for me. I uh, got to work with Ed 
and uh, Butch Guys and Betty Breitweiser. And uh, I loved it. That was another one of those combinations where, um, you know, Betty is probably just on a, on a kind of artistic level. I just love her color choices. I love her approach. You know, it's just like it's, it's uh, she's, she's just one of the top colorists, you know, mad different approach uh, Matt Hollingsworth you know Betty was just a, a, a breath of fresh air because she has such a unique approach to colors and Butch is kind of a genius I mean I I I, I was so impressed with him I had followed his career from the 1980s you know following in uh, Mike Golden's shoes on Micronauts I think and uh, you know developing this, this you know kind of style, very influenced by Buscema, but kind of doing different things. And then when he got to cross-gen comics, uh, he really just, it's like his work blossomed in ways that I hadn't seen before. Mm. He had Mike Perkins on inks, which, you know, was great. And uh, I thought it was really good. But when I got to see his pencils, it was kind of like when I worked with Michael. It was one of those things where it's like, oh my God, I'm understanding things about art that I didn't understand before. Completely different approach. I, I love working with Butch on the Captain America stuff and on the Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, at that time, changes were happening at Marvel that just been bought by Disney uh, and... Uh, things just didn't work out I actually had to quit Marvels fortunately I was working in a studio at the time with Brian Teese who had assisted me on the uh, Gunslinger series the Dark Tower Gunslinger series with uh, you know Michael penciled it and I inked it but I was using uh, his artist Brian Teese as an assistant Brian I knew was a solid penciler Inker on his own. So when I uh, felt like it, you know, just I needed to leave uh, Marvel basically, I was able to, uh, you know, we went back and forth for a couple of issues, but I was able to basically pass the baton to uh, Brian. If there hadn't been these changes on the sort of administrative level that required me to look elsewhere, I would have been happy to continue working on that series. In fact, seeing what Brian did uh, with Butch's pencils, you know, or the rest of the series, I was pretty envious because he did some amazing work. And it's like there was a few issues that came up after I left when he's there and, you know, they're drawing Wolverine, they're drawing Daredevil, <laughs> and I'm like, ah. Uh, I'd like to be there, you know. It's just like, but yeah, I'm really glad that Brian was able to take over because he was able to keep the book feeling the way it felt, and you know, bringing the best out of out of Butch's pencils. I think, uh, and Betty, uh, I think she was followed by Jordi Belair on that, uh, who was also good, and Matt Wilson. It, it, it was a really good series. I, I really enjoyed working on that, uh, as well as a Captain America issues that I did yeah now obviously that brings you to The Walking Dead and I mean that's obviously probably the the longest project you've worked on and the most consistent I mean how did did you already know Charlie before you entered the book 
I did know Charlie, but not well. Uh, we had met one time at a convention. We'd sat at a dinner together. Charlie had worked with um, uh, Joe Casey uh, on a project uh, years back, and we found ourselves at a Man of Action dinner. Uh, Joe and Steve Siegel, uh, Joe Kelly, Duncan Rouleau, you know, were just, you know, making a name for themselves in Hollywood, and obviously we're comics guys, and we rented, uh, you know, like hall when there were a bunch of us at the table, I got to sit next to Charlie actually. So, you know, it was nice to meet him. And this was back in maybe 2005, I'm not sure. So, way before I got uh, brought on to The Walking Dead, Charlie was already working on The Walking Dead. Um, and, you know, it was just nice. You know, I knew Charlie because we're the same age. We came up in comics at the same time in different countries. But, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, you know, here's another person that is getting started at the same time as I am, and here we are in 2005, we're both doing okay, right, which is cool. Um, I went from Marvel, I did freelance illustration for a few different clients for a while, and then again, I found that I was having a really hard time juggling stuff, so I actually called up Warren Simons, who had been my editor at Marvel, and then uh, became essentially editor-in-chief at uh, Valiant. So uh, I called Warren and I got a steady stream of work from him at Valiant for two years. And I actually asked him for that. I said, can you provide me with a steady stream of work? Basically, that's what I'm looking for. The pay rate was a little better uh, than what Marvel was offering me at the time when I left. Uh, just good enough to keep me afloat. And I'm like, if you can give me regular work, you know, I'd love to get back into conversation. And he said, I can give you two years, you know, pretty much guaranteed, and then we'll see what the company does from there, right? So right at the end of those two years, uh, I got an email from Kirkman just explaining that they're doing the All Out War series. It's going to be every two weeks instead of every month. And no matter how fast and talented Charlie is, they need an anchor, and they had looked at a few different options that, you know, for whatever reason didn't fall into place, and then uh, thought about me because of Gotham Central, I think, is actually what, what sort of was on their radar uh, more than anything else at that. It's like, oh, this might be a good fit, right? Uh, and uh, he made the offer, it's like it was an interesting conversation by email where it's like, it's like, okay, I'm going to give you an outstanding page rate in lieu of royalties, you know, and I'm like, could we maybe like have a little less subtrunk money and some It's like no. <laughs> I just very politely explained that you know that, that wasn't in the cards. But I'm like the page rate was so good that I, I basically couldn't say no. And I was excited at the I think at the time I was reading the book, you know, I was just like you know, buying the volumes and you know eating them like potato chips, you know, six at a time. And uh, um, so I uh, called Warren basically and said I got an offer but I can't refuse, you know. And it had been two years because understandably he was like, Hey, you know, I kinda of made a purge for you and now you're you're like taking off. It's like, you know, we'll 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 go get by but it was kind of nice having you as part of the team. We've got all these books going. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Well, it's that two years, you know. So it was like he, he graciously, you know, just like uh, let me go with his blessings and uh I felt like I could leave Valiant with a clear conscience, and we were up and running and doing well at that point anyway. Um, and yeah, of course, I couldn't pass up the opportunity. I mean, I, I thought it was so great. I was like, you know, thankful to, you know, I think there was a really great anchor uh, that uh, I had to turn down the offer for whatever reason, and I actually went and thanked him in person. I could say that was an incredible <laughs> And... Uh, yeah, it's, uh, that was amazing. You know, it just I, I thought at first it was just going to be for uh, all out war, and then of course it 
ended up being for the rest of the run except for the last issue, which they were brilliant. And like they told me, all they said, I knew there was, I know that Charlie is really like best inking his own work. He's the best person inking his own work. Every artist with Charlie's talent should ink his own work, right? Or her own work. So I always felt like I had this like dagger hanging over my head that one day I knew I was going to get the call when somebody was going to say, hey, Charlie's going to get back on Insta, right? And sure enough, after five five years or so, you know, I get the call and it's like, Charlie's going to get back on Inks. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, thank you for having me for as long as you did. That was really <laughs> awesome. It's going to be nice to see Charlie's Inks again. So I had no idea the series was actually ending. I had no idea that he was actually going back on Inks for one issue. You know? <laughs> it, it was really great. It just, uh, I thought, as a fan, it was beautiful. You know, I did not know that the series was going to end. And uh, I just loved the ending. Uh, and I, I loved being on the book. And I loved the way they brought it to a close. And I actually kind of loved seeing Charlie and himself on the last issue because he did such an amazing job, you know. <laughs> it's like there's, there's nothing like a man inking his own work. I don't care. I am really, really good at tracing pictures. I'm, I'm exceptionally good at tracing pictures. But there's nothing like an artist inking his own work, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was a great experience all around. It just, you know, it left now that, that, actually, you were asking about Daredevil. When The Walking Dead ended, that, I did feel like the rug was shut down from under my feet, you know. But I always knew it was going to be a temporary gig, you know. It just like, so it, it was just like, hey, could have been six months. It ended up being basically six years. That's a blessing, you know. But, oh man, this feels uncomfortable. Now I have to go get a job, you know? <laughs> So it just, that, that was very, uh, uh, it, it, it was very disruptive, uh, but, you know. Uh, it, it, it's just it, it ended the way it had to end and I'm really glad that I was there until pretty much almost the very end you know so speaking of a way to you know bounce and into something else then you end up with Deceased which ends up being I think much yes. maybe much bigger than people thought it was going to be oh certainly bigger than you know Trevor or myself I think Ben Abernathy and maybe Tom Tom Taylor might have known or might have at least you know they were playing cards and they knew what they were playing for mm-hmm. Trevor and I I literally took a job just I wasn't looking for inking work because when the Walking Dead ended I was offered um, I was offered disease when I already knew that the Walking Dead was going to end but I still had a few issues left to make my play right mm-hmm. So I was not looking for work. I especially was not looking for inking work because the economic reality in the years between 2003 when I started my inking career and 2018, 15 years later, when uh, my inking run on The Walking Dead ended, the economic situation in Seattle changed dramatically so that for a freelance cartoonist, for an inker to stay afloat, no way, just no way. I, you know, I. It's like after Amazon basically changed the economy here, the cost of living more than doubled, basically, right? So I was like, hey, as long as I'm working on The Walking Dead, I can actually make enough money that I can stay afloat. But I don't know if I'm able to stay afloat on an inking gig. So my gears were like thinking, hmm, maybe I'm going to go into video games, maybe I'm going to do this, maybe I'm going to do that. And uh, Ben 
Robert Nasty and I were in contact. I had a change of address or something, but I was communicating to him at the time. I knew him as a talent relations guy, right? And he's like, hey, uh, you know, since since I have you on email right now, you know, uh, how are you doing? And would you be interested in doing a book? And I think I was not interested in doing a book, but I just asked, well, who's drawing it? And he said, Trevor Hurst. And I'm like, okay, I'm in. You know, if you've got something with Trevor, I'm doing it because Trevor has been on my radar from the first time I, see his, I saw his work. I thought it was great. I got to ink a couple of his issues on uh, Valiant books, and I thought it was great. And I'm like, yeah, I'll work with Trevor, definitely, you know. I'm like, I don't even care about page rate. I don't care how much I'm making, you know. I'll just do it alongside this last few issues of Walking Dead as a kind of off-ramp out of inking and into whatever else I can make a living at, right? And, um, but I did it just because Trevor was on it, and Trevor told me that he was not expecting it to be a hit at all, and we were very gratified to see what an exciting story it was, how much fun it was. You know, reading the scripts, it's like, it's not even, it, it just, I haven't been reading comics that much, I'm an old guy, I'm still into the 1960 stuff and all this stuff, but I'm like, this is fun. It just he's hitting all these notes, he's playing with the characters, you know. It, it's like it was fun to work on. Working with Trevor was great. Ben was great to work for, you know, just like all of that. And then the, the cherry on top was holy crap, it sold two hundred and sixty five thousand copies, you know. So all of a sudden I actually had a conversation uh, with Ben at one point when I'd done like the first issue or two maybe and I was starting to worry about my finances and he gave me the numbers and said, you might want to stay on this book because I think you're going to come out okay financially. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, okay, thanks for the tip. That's great. I'm going to stay on the book. You know? <laughs> so that, that was that. And I'm really glad that I was able to be part of that project. It was a great project and, and it ended up paying my rent. You know, <laughs> just like we just, I wish I was living in Indiana So um, as we kind of wrap up here, what uh, what are the current projects that you're kind of working on that you can tell people about? Um, oh, wow. I forgot to check with my editors whether I can actually talk about it, but I'm working with Ben Abernathy again on a project with two people that I love again. And uh, I figure if it hasn't been announced, I can at least say who's on it because you won't know what I'm talking about and if it has been announced, it's probably not a big deal. I'm working with Tony Akins on Pencils and I love Tony. He and I have actually been studio partners in the past. He's an incredible artist and uh, the writer is Sean Martinborough and uh, I have known Sean as an artist and I got to meet him in person, love him as a person, love him as an artist. He was doing Detective Comics when I got on board doing In the Batman world doing Batman Family and uh, Gotham Central. So I actually saw designs that Sean had done for like the Batmobile and Gotham Central, Gotham City, you know, mm -hmm. that I used when I was kind of getting wrapped up to work at DC Comics. And now he's writing um, a couple of issues of a book that Tony is drawing and I'll, I'll be inking and I'm really excited about that. And then uh, um, there's actually a short story that Warren Simons pitched me uh, by Matt Kent and it's just a standalone short story it's a classic almost like EC Comics type of story it's got a science fictional bent on it which is 
I was surprised that Warren approached me with it because I'm not, I don't think of myself as a sci-fi guy, but this one has kind of a, you know, like with all the easy stories, it's got a kind of existential, uh, you know, theme to it more than just a sci-fi setting. And um, I'm really sinking my teeth into it. And, I, and actually the, the novel thing on this one is that Warren asked me if I was interested in penciling the story. I had done a couple of pages of penciled art at Marvel, uh, some for Warren on a Fat Cobra special, and then uh, a few pages for Steve Wacker on uh, a Spider-Man run, the Grip Hunt run, where yeah. Michael had some struggles finishing the story, and Matt Southworth and I had to jump in, and, and Marco Cecchetto, or Cecchetto, I forget how you say his name, um, and uh, I got to pencil a few pages of Spider-Man, which of course, you know, it's like lifelong dream come true. Uh, so Warren knew that I could draw, and for whatever reason, thought I would be, you know, maybe willing to draw this, and to my own surprise, I felt like I could say yes, and I asked about the deadline, you know, like it, it wasn't even about the money at that point, it's kind of like, okay, I'm 54 years old, and I'm going to dip my toes back into the penciling waters, and this old editor of mine thinks that he's got something that I could do that with. I wasn't looking for it, but when, when he pitched it, I was like, yeah, okay, I can get back in the water, maybe, let's see what happens. It's a short story, the deadline is agreeable, I like the story a lot, I uh, you know, was just talking with Warren, with the editor about it today, different things that we could do visually with it, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, both of those projects are going on now, and I'm going to be working on these two projects for the next few months, basically, uh, you know, deadlines are September, October, November, basically, and uh, we'll see whether I drop the ball or not, you know, I'm kind of uh, curious to see what, what happens to me creatively and uh, how the work turns out. Okay, well, that sounds very exciting. It's a nice. It'll be nice to see you back on pencils, and uh, you know, hopefully, you have a better experience this time around. You know, get as you said, getting your toe back into it, as opposed to when you kind of got out of the pool last time. Yeah, at least I don't have to draw four issues of, of an ongoing series. You know, on monthly deadlines. That's, that's that that does way more than I could choose. So it should be okay. We'll see. We'll see. Thank you so much for your time. I hope I didn't take you too late into you know Toronto time zone hours. Pretty <laughs> uh, nice. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, it was it was great to uh, get your insights in some of the, on some of these books and the, the different projects you've worked on, and the, especially Go- obviously Gotham Central and The Walking Dead, especially. But uh, yeah, thanks so much, and uh, it was great talking with you. Have a great night, and congratulations again. Thank you so much.